If there's one phrase that sums up the physical therapy profession, that phrase would be, it depends. Welcome to the Tales from the Plant podcast, where we will explore the notorious it depends phrase through interesting and in-depth interviews with physical therapists from all types of practice. Join us for inspiration, laughs, and tips and tricks in starting and improving your clinical practice. Welcome Welcome to to Tales Tales from from the Plant podcast. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Tales from the Plinth. We have Mary Amy with us this week. Can you say hey to the audience? Hi, everyone. So thank you so much for joining us this week. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing as a physical therapist? Sure, absolutely. Well, first off, I want to commend you all for such a wonderful job on this podcast. It is just amazing. I've had some time to go through the past episodes and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to everybody's experiences and the stories. It's really neat that you've compiled those all together. So kudos to you three. Um, And thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here tonight. Um, I guess I'll start off with telling you a little bit about myself. So like you said, my name is Mary Amy. I first got into physical therapy as an athlete. So when I was, when I was younger, I did a lot of sports like swimming, cross country. Um, I did a little bit of soccer, tennis. I kind of dabbled in everything. Um, But then as I got older, I specialized in ballet. And I actually became a professional dancer when I was in high school and moved away from home to dance professionally with a company while finishing high school online. And while I was doing that, I became injured. It was kind of inevitable. I was, I was dancing 40 plus hours a week and very, very busy. Um, and so I would see a physical therapist that had a background in dance. And that was just amazing to me because not only did she understand my needs from a medical perspective, but she understood my needs from a, the perspective of a young athlete and a performing artist. So that really inspired me to think like, hey, maybe this could could be a career choice for me down the line. Um, So I ended up taking my SATs and applying to schools and I got into Gannon's three plus three um, DPT program. So I did the three years of undergrad in sport and exercise science and then three years of grad school and I graduated in 2016. And then after that, I completed an orthopedic residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital in their pediatric sports medicine division, working with young athletes and um, performing artists and and learning and growing as a clinician. And then after that, I moved back to my hometown of Erie and took a few per diem positions while I was studying for my OCS exam. And so I worked at um, UPMC CRS centers, well, CRS is centers for, or centers for um, rehab services. And I worked at their locations all over Erie as like kind of a float casual position. And then I also floated in the hospital um, in their acute care facility here in Erie. Um, and then I also worked per diem at Shriners hospitals for children at the same time. So after I um, took my OCS and then passed, I decided to um, 
accept a full-time position at Shriners, where I've been now for quite a few years. Yeah, that's great. And first off, let me say thanks, Mary, just for listening to all of our podcasts. That really means a lot to us. So we didn't really know how how big this thing was going to get when we started it. So the fact that somebody as successful as you is listening to it pretty pretty regularly, that that's awesome. So thank you. Hey, there. And I'm passing the word on. So you might get yes. more listeners. Bring it on. <laughs> that's great. I have a lot of patients right now who want to become physical therapists because of their experience in PT. And I've been telling them all to listen to your podcast so they can kind of learn and grow and shape their experience early on. So perfect. That's awesome. I hope they give it a listen. (laughs) So I know you said you did the orthopedic residency and all that, and you're working with young athletes. So what kind of makes working with young athletes unique compared to just, you know, general orthopedics? That's a great question. So it's, to me, it's very different. Um, And it's more so what I wanted to do and what I knew I wanted to do when I was in school. So I knew I always wanted to work with kids in some capacity. And I was really torn on if I wanted to work more in like the neuromuscular population or the neurodevelopmental population versus sports medicine. Um, And it's kind of nice because where I'm at, I have a a perfect blend of of all worlds, but I do specialize more in sports medicine. And I think the difference between working with young athletes versus general orthopedics or adult outpatient orthopedics is that kids are so resilient. When an athlete comes in, and I'm sure, I'm sure you played sports when you were younger, or at least, you know, a lot of the listeners have. So you can remember yourself when, when you maybe um, sprained your ankle or hurt your knee, or even just had to sit out for half of a practice, how bummed you were and how down you were about that. The kids are so resilient and they're so motivated to get back into their prior level of function. It's incredible. They're inspiring. It's it's amazing to work with them every day. And I just I just feel like I I love working with patients that are so motivated. So my question is, you said when you were growing up and you were a dancer and you got hurt, your PT was kind of familiar with dance and how that kind of mental part of it might be, you know, being hurt. How important do you think that is being able to understand from that kid's perspective, say they're a high school football player, basketball player, whatever it is, just how important that really is to their life, you know, and how does having that understanding help you treat them? Oh, I think it's huge. I, I think that helps me to build my rapport with, I would say almost all of my patients. So being able to say, hey, I remember being in that moment. I remember um, what it felt like to have to sit out and to not be with my friends and to have to work on exercises. But at the end of the day, we're gonna get strong. We're gonna get you back there. And I, you know, you and I will work hard together and we'll make sure that that happens at the end of the day. So I think that it's, it's huge for all athletes. And I think, it's interesting because even though I, I did a lot of sports when I was younger, a lot of different, I had a lot of different experiences. I was very grateful. My family 
kind of let me try a lot of different things before I decided to specialize in dance. But I think even in sports that I'm not as familiar with, so I'll give you a couple examples. Um, so like horseback riding, I'm not super familiar with. Marching band, I'm not super familiar with. Um, wrestling, I wasn't super familiar with. Even volleyball, like I had to learn some of the, some of the verbiage, right? But I think that that goes a long way. If you're willing to do your research on your own or you're willing to watch a YouTube video of an Olympian of how they do a serve or how they do this or how they do that and really learn the movement that they're trying to get back to, then you're going to not only gain their buy-in, but your rehab is going to be excellent because you're, you know exactly what you're trying to model and what you're trying to send them back to. So I think for me, working with dancers and gymnasts and performing artists is, I don't want to say easy, but it comes a little bit easier because I do have that background. So that trust is there right away. But I think sometimes with other athletes, um, I have to gain their trust and I'm willing to work for that. So I'm always up for the challenge to learn some new, whether it be verbiage or new skill. And I love having the patient teach me too. It's great. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome point. And the question came to mind because I thought of a patient that I had seen this summer who I think he was like 12 or so. And he came in with what was pretty consistent with like shin splints and he was a soccer player and he was a football player. And he initially, like, I mean, like a lot of 12 year old kids, like didn't really want to be there. It's kind of grumpy, like with mom that came in and everything for his first visit, second visit didn't really do any better. So eventually I started to try, like incorporate like, okay, we're doing this exercise, but this is like when you're playing linebacker this fall, like this is what you're going to have to be doing and you know, blah, 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 things along those lines. And he like right, right away, you could see his attitude shift a little bit. It became less of a chore to him and it was more kind of fun and gave it meaning. So definitely. Yep. I, mean, I love it. That's, that's exactly what I do. So the second that you can make the task more salient to them, so more relevant to their day-to-day -day life, the more motivated they're going to be, the more passion you're going to see behind their eyes. And I even do this with my patients who have an ACL reconstruction. So even the second we can start weight bearing, I mean, I'll, I'll give them a ball. I'll give them a hockey stick to hold. I'll give them something. And I'm not kidding. It's like light night and day. They will light up and just be so, so excited and not see it as, oh, I have to stand on my leg for 30 seconds, you know, but no, I'm holding a ball and playing, playing catch and to have a football in my hands again, just feels amazing. So you couldn't be more right with that. Mary, I wanted to talk about something that um, kind of came to mind when you were talking about how the athletes that you work with um, are largely like the performing arts. And I wanted to kind of ask you about what your thoughts are regarding early sports specialization in those kids. Cause I know that that's something that I've heard could possibly lead to like those adult overuse type injuries. But I wanted to pick your brain about that as well. Yeah, so this is a really hot topic right now. Um, early sports specialization is, is certainly a hot topic. So 
I believe that the um, American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with a consensus statement on early sports specialization and the fact that they are against it. Um, and I think more pediatricians and pediatric sports med physicians are trying to spread that word. Um, my stance on it is I know that early sports specialization leads to higher injury rates, higher burnout rates, um, less likelihood that the, the child or the athlete is even going to play a sport in high school or even play a sport in college. So I think it's very easy for me to say as the clinician, but I think trying to gain the parent and the patient buy-in on that is extremely difficult. So a, a parent might look at their child when they're five years old and, it, and is you know showing great potential in gymnastics or maybe ballet or soccer. It doesn't really matter what the sport might be, but they might really hone in on that skill and they're really, it's really hard to get through to them that that might not be the best for their child. Um, that's kind of my answer on that. I, I, I've done a lot of research. I, I've looked at a lot of the literature and, and like I said, it, it's, it really is clear that early sports specialization is, is not the way to go. And actually being a multi-sport athlete for as long as you can is probably going to make you a better athlete in the long run, in re regardless of whatever sport you decide to pursue. And I think that that was true for even myself. Like, I didn't really start specializing in ballet until I was 14, or I think when I was a freshman in high school, I stopped doing all of my other sports. But before that, I was cross-training, mostly swimming was my main cross-train, um, but I was still competitive in swimming. Um, I also did cross country. I also just like to play outside and be a kid. And I think a lot of kids are missing that piece because everything is so regimented and scheduled. But yeah, unfortunately there's not a really good answer to that. So that was actually gonna be my next question. And Ben, I'm sorry, I know you have a question. I just wanted to kind of follow up. Um, obviously, those adult overuse type injuries have to come from some aspect of the repetitiveness of whether they're practicing a certain technique or performing all the time or something like that. Is there anything that you do in your daily work as a physical therapist to maybe not make them change sports would be like, hey, when you're at dance practice tonight, rather than going through the same routine over and over again, switch it up, do something different, make your body adapt in different ways? Yeah, I, I definitely do that. Um, it's a lot of patient education and all of my patients get homework, get home exercises on the first day and they get progressed, you know, almost weekly. So I think with dancers and with, with any repetitive athlete. So, I mean, you could even think about golfers as a similar situation, always rotating the same direction. I think it's important to say, yes, we need to be strong in the, movements that you're doing all of the time, because that's the expectation of your sport. And I understand that. I understand that you want to work on just this skill, but as your physical therapist, I'm going to educate you on the fact that if you work on 
you know, these other muscles and these other, um, whether it be strengthening them or making them more flexible or, or what have you, you're going to actually in turn make yourself stronger at this skill that you want to be strong at. So I think that that's really a hard sell sometimes. So if we, if we use dancers as an example, so they do most of their, um, well, if we talk about like classical ballet dancers, they do most of their work in turnout. So in external rotation, hip external rotation. So if I try to have them do anything in neutral position or what we call parallel, they're gonna look at me like I have 10 heads because well, I never do this position and, and you know, why would I have my legs like this? But it's important to strengthen those muscles and to make sure that we can still get into those positions because of those overuse injuries. So I think it's just patient education and the delivery of it and letting the patient know that you hear them and you hear the importance of why they want to do something one way, but yet you can educate them on why this secondary position or tertiary position is also important. That's a great point. That's a good question, Dave. It's very similar to what I was going to ask. So back again to the specialization and depending, I feel like on the patient's age, a lot of that obviously comes from, like I always say, it's like they're living their parents' dream, right? Like if their parents' dream was to be a professional baseball player, their kid's going to throw a baseball from the time he's four. Right. So it's almost like the kid's not even choosing that, which is a whole other, I think, discussion that we could have. But the question I had was like, do you see a lot of patients that have this similar situation? And how do you, do you feel like it's more parent driven? And how do you, I guess, get parents to buy into what you're trying to sell in that situation? That's a great question. Um, so this, this kind of goes in line with why I love working with pediatrics because I love, like I said earlier, I love the motivation, the perseverance, the fact that they're, they want to get back into their sport. They are just driven. Every single thing that they do is to get me back to play soccer, to get me back on the field, to get me back in the dance studio, whatever it may be. So the second I start to notice that somebody doesn't want to get back on the field, or doesn't want to get back in the studio, my mind starts to kind of go towards that route of, oh, is this mom or dad's dream? Oh, is this patient, or they're not getting better. Maybe the patient's not getting better, right? So, and I'm like, oh gosh, usually my patients are better in a couple of weeks after an ankle sprain or after, you know, what have you. So then I start to think about, patient malingering. So usually we think about malingering in the adult world. Um, and again, not to be stereotypical, but maybe in a workers' comp situation, or again, not to be stereotypical, but you know, we always kind of have that example in the back of our minds. But the second I start to hear some of those things, or I don't wanna go to practice, or I don't even care if I get back into gymnastics, or they're just not getting better, they're not doing their exercises. That's really what clues me up to think there's more going on here. Um, and sometimes it is their, it is the parent that's pushing them. Sometimes it's that they've just lost interest because they've been out of the sport for so long. And sometimes that's, um, the, the psychological readiness is, is not quite there. So they might physically be ready due to their, their bout of rehab, but 
physically they're not, or excuse me, psychologically they're not there because maybe they were injured in their sport and they're just replaying that scenario in their mind. Um, and they haven't, they haven't been back on the field since they've been injured. So now what's going to happen the first time they step back on. Um, so that psychological readiness piece is huge, but Ben, you're exactly right. Um, I definitely do see that. And I think managing it and asking those tough questions from, from the first signs is important. So I know we kind of talked in our correspondence prior to the interview about some of the technology you use with these um, this pediatric population and sports. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, I know you do some gait and, gait and motion analysis. Um, Absolutely. Um, so when I was a grad student um, at Gannon, I had a graduate assistantship with Shriners Hospitals for Children in Erie. And I worked in the motion analysis center for two years. So that was my first experience with motion capture. And from the first time I saw it, I was just enamored with the technology, with um, the capability that we were able to help children to walk again, help children to run again. I was just amazed with, with all of it. So when I had the opportunity to come on at Shriners full time, um, I actually was first hired as the PT in the Motion Analysis Center and the coordinator of clinical research. So I wasn't even truly treating patients in our rehab department like you would think a traditional PT would be doing, but I was actually running the 3D motion capture equipment and collecting our gait analyses data, our sport analyses, our spine analyses. So really any movement that can be completed by the human body can be modeled um, and collected with 3D motion capture. And then it can be modeled on the computer and analyzed. So that has been an amazing piece of my career that, that it was just a door that opened for me and I'm, I'm just so lucky to have it. Um, and right now, I, I do a little bit less of the gait analyses, but I do, um, as that's more of our neuromuscular population, so we have another therapist who specializes in that, I do a lot of our spine assessments. So we model the trunk pre and post um, posterior spinal fusion or vertebral body tethering techniques, which are both surgical procedures for patients with scoliosis. And we are looking at how their motion changes before and after surgery at six months um, and two years after to see at what point um, should we fuse the patient? Should we go lower? Should we go higher? Because there's always a little bit of, bit, bit of debate about that. Um, and then the larger portion of what I do in our motion analysis center right now is our um, comprehensive sports assessments. So in our sport assessments, we look at several different things. So we look at running, drop vertical jump, acceleration, deceleration, single hop for distance, lateral shuffle, forward step down, and a 45 degree cut maneuver as, um, 
as we know from the literature, it takes more of a battery of tests rather than one single test to help determine a patient's readiness to return to sport. So that is the battery that we've decided on based on the literature. And it's just been amazing. It is so fun to do those assessments and the athletes think it's amazing. They, they feel like professional athletes when their body is modeled up on the screen and they see their skeleton doing the movements and the, the information that we get and we provide to the physicians is, is incredible. It's really state of the art. And I know we're the only ones doing it in this area. And we're one of the only places in the country running this exact protocol right now. Um, so we're looking to really standardize the face of sports medicine and return to sport for athletes in the U.S. and, and potentially around the world. Yeah, that's really impactful. I feel like, does that help with patient, I guess, kind of patient buy-in with that? You know, seeing that, you know, they can see where they're, you know, their knees kind of buckling when they're doing a certain motion or maybe, you know, their hips moving in a way it shouldn't while they're jumping. Do you think that really helps them see that like, oh, okay, like these exercises are helping and that kind of definitely. Thing. I, I definitely think that. So what we usually do is we typically have our patients complete like a baseline return to sport testing. So the idea of that would not be to return the patient to sport, but rather it's their first opportunity to complete the testing. So maybe at six months post-op an ACLR could go through the testing, right? Because we can do running, we can do cutting, we can do more of those agility measures, but maybe not much before that, depending on what surgical technique they had or what the surgeon's preference is. So maybe we would complete it at six months, not with the intention that their score would be um, within the passing range, but so that we can better analyze their movement to tailor the remainder of their therapy to make sure that it's successful and that we're really making sure to hone in on every single last deficit that still remains. And then we'll redo their return to sport testing, maybe at nine months post-op or 10 or depending on what, are, what the, how the athlete is presenting, I guess. And at that point, the expectation would be to return to sport based on their test. So again, it could be 10 months, it could be 12 months, um, depending on what the injury was. Well, that's really cool. I know if, as I, if I was a young kid and I got hurt, I would love to see that. I would think I was like in a video game or something. And that's, yeah, that's exactly what it looks. That's yep. exactly what it looks like. It's the exact same technology that that's um, used to make video games. Right now we have a brand new um, Bicon Vantage um, 5 camera system. So we have 10 motion capture cameras and two observational video cameras. We have um, a 16 channel EMG system. And then we have three force plates embedded in the floor, as well as a pitot bar graph that's embedded in the floor that can give you um, pressure mapping of your foot. So it's really amazing. And I usually when we come down into the motion analysis center, the patients and the parents are really wowed. Yeah, that's awesome. That's not your everyday gait assessment out there, for you <laughs> listeners, for sure. <laughs> that's sweet. <laughs> um, question I did have, though, was on the standardization topic. Now, how important do you think that is? Because not just for sports therapy, I mean, there's a lot of different theories and methods that people are using for all sorts of therapies. And I know 
um, in my first rotation, it's very McKenzie heavy. And McKenzie is really based on like wanting to standardize the examination and giving everybody this same shot at, you know, an evaluation. So how important do you think that is like long-term big picture? Yeah, I think it's definitely important. Um, standardization can be tough though, right? Especially when you're, when you want it to be widespread. Um, so I think that that's the biggest challenge. So right now I'm working with, I think 10 of our hospitals. So within the Shriner system, we have 22 hospitals that span um, Canada, the US and Mexico. And right now I'm actually leading a rehab subcommittee that's looking at standardizing sports medicine and optimizing documentation for sports medicine and standardizing a, re a return to sport rehab protocol. So that is, I think, a great start because we're going to have at least 10 hospitals and then hopefully 22 on board with this same protocol that then we can hopefully publish and it can be used um, by all. So I think that that's an amazing, an amazing beginning. But like you said, it's very tough. It's very tough. And I think until it's until it's well-researched or out there in the research more, people likely aren't going to jump onto it. So we're in the process of hopefully getting our work published and um, out there so others can be a part of it. So the battery of tests that you're using then, are, is it like a proprietary protocol for like your team and the different Shriners teams right now then? And like you just gathered those tests based on research or how, 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 how does that work? So the battery of tests that I was speaking about earlier is the testing protocol that we're doing within our motion analysis center with the markers on and the 3D motion capture. So that differs from our return to sport testing protocol and rehab. Um, is it proprietary? I'm gonna say yes and no. <laughs> um, because we are working to to get it out in the literature and we're and we're working with with other members of a team even outside of Shriners we have um, Children's Hospital Los Angeles is involved um, Texas Scottish Rite is involved so it's kind of a, a whole group of people that are are working to really battle the conundrum of when to return children to sports so I guess the the testing is not proprietary because it's in the literature, but we've, we've taken the time to do the lit reviews and figure out what is the best battery for return to sport testing. So in rehab, we're doing, you know, the four functional hop tests, the Y balance test, lateral and forward step down test, lower extremity functional test, pro agility test, landing area scoring system, and then isokinetic strength testing in addition to subjective outcome measures. Um, so no, that's not proprietary, but the probably the way that we're going to implement it and um, the marker set that we're using in the Motion Analysis Center, right now that's kind of all the team's work, I guess, if that makes sense, until it's published. And even that right now, it's a work in progress, so we haven't even finalized the um, the final marker set because if you guys are familiar at all with with motion capture um 
how they make video games and how they make movies. So they often wear like a, a green suit or a black suit. Well, with our kids, they we need to be more precise. We're not making cartoon characters, right? We want our anatomy to be exactly perfect. So we put what we call the markers or this, these stickers that are retroreflective right on the skin. And we're trying to develop the the most accurate marker set that encompasses everything that we wanna look at while being the least invasive to the patient or restrictive, I guess, restrictive to the patient. So we want the patient to feel that they can move as easily as possible, but yet still have enough markers to gather the data that we need. Yeah. Now, how much does kind of the you know, foundation and field of pediatric sports medicine overlap with adult sports medicine because, I mean, baseball is baseball, but like there are some differences between, you know, junior high, high school baseball and the major leagues. So how much kind of overlap is there between those fields and then where do they kind of differ or what's kind of that big, um, yeah, just kind of where do they differ? That's a good question. So I feel like the majority of my patients right now that I treat in rehab that are my sports med patients are between the ages of eight and 18. So you can imagine that an eight-year-old who plays soccer once or twice a week in the summer is very different than some of my athletes that are 18 that are being recruited to D1 colleges on full scholarships. So what they are looking for, or, or I guess what their goals and their dreams are in life are very different. You know, some might be a little underdeveloped yet and we're still getting there, but um, others have a clear trajectory of where they're going. Like, for example, I had a patient today who told me that she wants to be in the next Olympics. And I have no doubt that she'll get there. But I think that bridging that gap is, is sometimes hard because when you have care as a, a pediatric or adolescent athlete and you're used to that care and then you kind of quote unquote graduate out of that system, I can, I can feel for the athletes that they, they kind of don't know where home is or where where to get the help that they need. Because a lot of these um, doctors or facilities only see kids up to the age 18 or 21, sometimes 26. So I think in that case, um, that's how it's different. And, and I think a lot of the times to working with pediatric and adolescents, it's, it's more of a family-centered approach rather than the single athlete approach. So we're taking into consideration the entire picture rather than in maybe a professional athletic arena, it would be like, hey, you need to get on the field in order to in order to play because that's in your contract. So I don't care if your shoulder hurts or whatever the case might be. But in, in our scenario, it's, you know, we look at the whole picture, we we look at their their psychological health, we look at how the family's um, participating in their care. Um, we make sure that their nutrition is where it needs to be, their hydration. Um, really the whole picture. So I, I think that that's how it's different. So I had a question about 
um, that patient example or similar patients where it's like, hey, you know, she wants to be in the Olympics or this, this person is going to be a division one athlete. Do you ever feel a sense of like increased pressure on yourself? That's like, Hey, like this, they're really, their whole life kind of depends on me just a little bit. And going along with that, I'm sure they're very eager to always get back on the field. And you, you talk, you touch on that a lot about the resiliency. What kind of strategies do you use to kind of rein that in and kind of back it, back it up and say, Hey, like, I know that's really what you want to do, but it's not really possible right now. Yes. So there is a lot of pressure. Um, there definitely is a lot of pressure at times, um, but I have to go back onto my training and, and lean back onto the fact that like, I know I was trained really well in school again and my residency and my mentors throughout that time were incredible and I can't speak enough to that. So I think they pushed me for these moments and, and they saw that I had it in me. And so they really made me rise to the occasion years ago. And so now I'm prepared and I, I'm ready to have those tough conversations with patients and I'm, I'm ready to um, challenge them um, to, to take a rest. And I'm ready to, to challenge them to find other ways to exercise. So you have shin splints and you can't run and you can't jump, but you, you still want to be a division one athlete. Well, Hey, you have a pool in your backyard and it's summer. Guess what? We're doing aquatic therapy every day at your house. You know what I mean? This is what you're doing. I don't care if your friends are over. I don't care if you're doing it as a group to have your whole team over. We're getting in the pool and we're working hard. And I think that there's a great balance of, of being tough but also being empathetic and saying, I, you know, I understand where you're at and, you know, we're going to get through this together, but in order for me to get you there, we got to work hard. And, and sometimes it's not going to be fun, but we'll get there. And a lot of the times I do my exercises with my patients. I mean, I will be sweating with them in the trenches, ready to go. So I think that that helps with buy-in and um, it just makes it a lot of fun. And so that same patient that told me today that she wants to be in the Olympics someday, um, well, actually she wants to be in the next Olympics. She told me um, also, I mentioned to her, she wants to be a physical therapist. And I mentioned to her about this podcast. And I said, you should really listen to some of these great stories so you can maybe see what field you wanna go into. And I said, and actually, by the way, I'm getting interviewed on this podcast tonight. What do you think I should say? And she goes, oh my gosh, you are like a second mom to me. You should just tell everybody that. So people just really get to know you. And I think even though I've had to have some tough conversations with her regarding her care, um, she's going to come out stronger in the end. And, you know, we still have a really good relationship and a really good rapport. That's really cool. I love that. And I, I love the rapport that you can have with your patients, especially when they're that young. Um, my next question was kind of regarding um, like when you are analyzing the motion of, you know, a young athlete in their respective sport, obviously you have to have a lot of knowledge about the motion and what they have to obtain within that motion to perform it successfully. But when you're looking at young athletes, a lot of the times they might not be able to achieve what's quote unquote 
perfect or pro level that young. And so when you're screening these movements and you're trying to implement these proper patterns, how close do you strive for perfection and how much of a leeway are you willing to give before they do return to sport? That's a tough question. So this is kind of like another um, controversial uh, topic. So when we've developed some of these return to sport testing protocols, one of my ideas was to potentially have um, thresholds developed for a recreational track of athlete, both age and gender matched, and then more of your pre-professional uh, year-round club athlete, because we know that those athletes are, are two totally different kids at the end of the day. We're still in the infancy of looking at that and looking at norms to decide what really is normal movement in these tests. Um, and we are testing that and we will be um, coming out with those soon. But I think that that's really tough. And sometimes like when I'm working with a child who maybe is 10 and has knee pain and is an athlete by his definition, which again, anybody can be an athlete, right? But maybe he means he plays pickup basketball in the backyard a couple times in the summer. My expectations for him are going to be just a little bit lower just because his prior level of function or his baseline is going to be at a different level than a varsity football player's baseline would be. So I think that taking into account what the patient could do before they were injured and then seeing where you can get them after, that's important. Sometimes we can get them even a little bit better than they were before, but you know, we're not gonna be able to make strides and bounds sometimes because we have to stay episodic in our care and just address the injury at the time. That's a great answer. My next question was kind of more for like my own personal curiosity too. Have you ever had to implement like weight training protocols with these athletes when they're young? And I mean, if you have or have not, like what's your opinion about, you know, athletes getting into lifting weights maybe younger on? Yeah, that's a great question. And it comes up more and more every day. It feels like um, it's usually the dads asking about when their sons can start lifting in the garage or in the basement with them, um, especially since a lot of people have moved to the home gym because of COVID. So, you know, I always try to implement some type of weight training in my exercise routines and my, my PT sessions with kids. So usually if they're, you know, probably 12 and older is when I, I usually start to use weights. Um, but we always work on proper squat form, proper lunge form, all of those basics, like how to brace your core when you're doing squats, how, you know, how are your biomechanics? Like that's such a huge piece of what I do every day. So I feel like even if we don't add the weights, I would be comfortable with them, you know, adding weights down the line because at least they now have the foundation. So I think that that's what a lot of kids are missing is the foundation to even do the task without resistance. 
And then they start to add all of this weight to, to kind of look cool to their friends and to keep up with their, their older teammates and their idols. And, and that's where injuries can occur. So I think education earlier on is actually good because then they'll know what to expect and um, how to progress and how to do it safely. Now I'm curious, like I know a patient we had, I had in clinic this summer, you know, he's a pitcher in high school, he's having shoulder pain, his, you know, anterior chest musculature, super strong, but when my CI um, did the empty can with him, he could push him down with two fingers, no problem, because they aren't training like the posterior chest musculature. You know, how often do you see maybe patients being coached incorrectly where, you know, their form is off, they're not getting well-rounded exercise programs where they're, you know, starting to lack or they have deficits in one area of the body and they're, you know, almost too strong in others. How often do you see that and how do you kind of handle that? I see that all the time all the time. Um, it's a hard conversation to have. So whether that be with the coach or with the parent or even with the athlete themselves, but I think it's important. And I think that as athletes get older, what I teach them and what's part of their patient education, as well as their home exercise program is their own personalized warm up. So I say, okay, I know that your team warms up. Show me what you guys do. And they'll just breeze through like three stretches and like a, a lunge or something. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, that's better than nothing, you know, but everybody has their own unique needs. And I kind of bring it into, you know, puberty and changing from like a, a child into your adolescence. And I say, as our bodies change, we have different needs than our friends. Like maybe, maybe your best friend has tight hamstrings and we a weak core and maybe you have this and that. And so I make sure that they're extremely comfortable with their own personalized warmup. And I say, this is what you need to do. I know you get water breaks. I know you get to practice 20 minutes early. I know you do this. I know you do that. This is what you can do during that time. And I try to build it into their practices. And I do the same thing with dancers too. Like I'll say, okay, when you you know, when you're changing classes or when you're warming up or between bar and center, do these three things. Like, I know you have the time because I've been there, you know, and I think that that's, that's important because if you give them a five page booklet to do at home after they've been to school, after they've been to practice, after they've been through all of this, they might not get to it. So make it part of their routine. And if practice is part of their routine, I think that's a great way. Another thing that I've done to um, educate coaches and physical education teachers is I've actually gone out into the community and done some outreach. Now it's been a it's been a while because of COVID and everything, so I'm hoping to get some of that back up and going in the next few years. But it was it was amazing to speak with some of these coaches and um, physical education teachers and teach them some of the warm-up protocols and the importance of warming up and injury prevention protocols and how easy they are to implement and giving them examples and going over them with their team and 
giving their team captain some autonomy and leading those protocols with their team. So that has been a, a really, a really great piece. And I hope that we can get into that more now that um, COVID protocols are, are slowing down a little bit. I'll tell you what you should do is you should do a seminar called the Mary Amy seminar for like, you know, dad coaches and teach, them how to teach their <laughs> kid athletes how to, you know, throw right or do certain things correctly. I love it. I love it. Hey, I might take that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's good stuff. And I just want to switch gears a little. I'm like super intrigued way back. You mentioned you were dancing like 40 hours a week in high school plus going to high school. So how the heck did you do that? First and foremost. Second, how has that helped you just, I mean, being a PT in any setting is busy. Seems like you're even busy maybe to the next level. You got quite a bit going on. How did that help you time management and just balancing and all that? Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. So yes, it was very busy. Um, I was doing high school online, so I wasn't going into high school. Um, I know it seems like it was a long time ago and I was kind of one of the one of the first people to do it. And it was not really a cool thing to do back then, but it was great. I mean, so I danced all day. I probably even danced more than 40 hours a week. I honestly, I, I can barely remember. So I was 16 at the time and we would do, I mean, 10, 12 hours a day. And then, you know, during Nutcracker season, you know, two shows a day for, I don't know, five or six weeks straight. And so, I mean, I, I kind of did school when I had time, um, but I was, I got to be really good with time management um, because I wanted to dance and that's really was my main passion. And so, you know, I kind of had agreement with my parents, you know, I can do this as long as I keep up with my schoolwork. And um, they were very, very supportive of that. And, and it was incredible. And it was a great, a great chapter of my life. And it, it led me to where I am now. And I think that having that level of discipline at such a young age really helped me to, to work through my career like I have. So I was always very driven, um, you know, always striving for excellence and, and to, to reach the next level. And I think that a lot of that had to do with my dance training. That's great. Now this is gonna this might be a little hard hitter question here, so I'll just be prepared. But so looking back, obviously you're super passionate about dance, like you can just tell in the way you talk about it, and that's awesome. So knowing what you know now as a physical therapist and what you've seen, would you change anything about the way that you did things growing up, whether it be dance or how you played sports in general? a really good question. I don't think I've ever really thought about it. Um, no, I don't think I would. I really don't think I would have. Um, because I think I did cross train till I was quote unquote old in the dance world till I was about 14. Um, most people start specializing when they're like six or seven. So I think that, you know, I, I think that that was helpful to me. And I think that that helped me to, to maintain um, 
you know, strong body to keep doing that for several years. I, at the time that I got out of dancing, I was a little bit upset about it because I thought that was going to be my career for the rest of my life, even though it's not a very long career because it's so hard on your body, you know, as any professional athletics are. And now looking back, I'm so glad that I, I did everything in the exact way that I did. And I think that, you know, there's always a greater plan and there's always a reason that you are where you are. And there's always a reason that you meet the people that you do. And this was exactly where I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. And I couldn't be more grateful for the experiences I had and everything I can grow upon that. So to kind of wrap things up, I wanted to ask you, you know, for your listeners and even for your patients listening to the podcast, what do you love most about this profession and kind of what really motivates you in your practice? I would say I love my patients the most and they motivate me the most. I, I think that that's an easy one, hands down. Um, for me in particular, I think that I've learned that patients teach you more about yourself and about the profession than you could even imagine. I learn so much from my patients and they challenge me to, to continue my education and to, to, to learn more and to grow every single day. And I also think that it's especially working with children, it's an extreme honor to work with kids. Like having somebody to, um, having somebody like a parent or a guardian entrust you with their child, which is their most prized possession on this planet is an incredible place to be. And it is such an honor. It's, it's the greatest honor that I have. And I, I couldn't be happier. And that's what really, that has been my driving force for excellence throughout my entire career. And I think that even back when I was in school, like I had the foresight to know that my patients deserve the best. They, they don't deserve mediocrity. They don't deserve barely mastery. They deserve they deserve the best. Like, cause if it was my child, if it was my parent, if it was my grandmother, that's what I would want for them. So yeah, hands down, I'd have to say my patience. I flippin' love that. And <laughs> for everybody that knows me, I'm a huge quote guy. So I have to drop this one. Cause as you were saying it, like it would just remind me of it. I'm reading this book right now. Um, kids in my class read it, it's called On Fire. John O'Leary guy was burned as a child. But it says, when you know your why, you can endure any how. And I just love that. You I just like gave that. us your why, right? You just there gave you, us your why. There so you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mary. This was phenomenal. I had a great time. So much good insight. Can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. And if anybody, um, any listeners or any of you ever need help or have a question, um, whether it be today, tomorrow, three years from now, feel free to reach out. I love helping anybody and anybody. So um, I think my email will be in the show notes. So just reach out 
and um, best of luck with finishing up your last year. And I'm sure you have bright, bright futures ahead of you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks. Well, there it is, people. Episode 15 of Tales from the Plinth. I got to say, when we first started this, we weren't sure how big it was going to get and how far we were going to go. So to say that we made it to our 15th episode, that's really cool. We want to thank all you guys for listening. As always, we want to give one big last special thank you to Mary Amy. That was great info today. And we hope you guys keep enjoying. We'll see you next week.